This episode may be supported by advertising depending on your location. Yeah, all right. I'll I'll die on this hill. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll bet that Jeremy and Rich will die on this hill with me. Yes, Koji's better than sourdough. <laughs> Bread lovers can fight me. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd, and today we are venturing into the magical world of mold, specifically the mold Aspergillus oryzae, or as it's much better known as in Japanese, koji. On this episode, I'm joined by Japan Times food editor Claire Williamson. You heard her voice earlier. And over the past few months, as so many people have buried themselves in the microbiotic world of sourdough, Claire has sought her relief elsewhere in this mold called koji. And she's learned to cook with it in all sorts of adventurous ways. Along the way, she's reached out to others in the growing koji community. And two of these were Rich Shi and Jeremy Umansky, who turned their love of the mold into a new book called Koji Alchemy. You'll hear both of their voices sprinkled throughout this episode in which we'll ask what makes koji so interesting and how is it spreading beyond the borders of Japan? Claire Williamson, Japan Times food editor. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with the basics. What is koji and why is it so interesting? Ooh, all right. So, I mean, everyone already knows what sourdough is right so you know you've got your you've got your flour you got your water you got your wild yeast it's been the ultimate sort of coronavirus lockdown slow food trend but it you know japan has its own kind of iconic slow food it's its semi-official national mold and that is kochi I'm actually really impressed you said it correctly I legit practiced several times how to say aspergillus <laughs> and then you beat me to saying it correctly. I'm like, you, I feel like you stole my thunder a little bit on this. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. But no, it's it's this um, mold that most people know as being involved for making sake. So it's what's grown on, on rice before that's turned into the alcohol we all know and love. But earlier this year, I learned about these two guys, Richie and Jeremy Umansky, uh, hello, my name is Rich Shi. Uh, hello, my name is Jeremy Mansky. Who have been doing really innovative things um, with koji and sort of taking it beyond the traditional, typical, you know, sake, miso, soy sauce, and sticking it on meat and sticking it on vegetables and sticking it in baked goods. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, I know, right? Um And so they put out this new book, and I really wanted to dig into it. And now here I am, experimenting with mold in my kitchen. So tell me about this new book. Uh, It's called Koji Alchemy, right? And and you've spoken to Jeremy and Rich a couple of times. Yeah, no, I've had the pleasure of speaking to them um, twice. Once for an article, and then and then again for this for this podcast. Um, Their book is called Koji Alchemy: Rediscovering the Magic of Mold-Based Fermentation. And you know, in a nutshell, it's all about growing koji yourself, all the different ways you can use it, and really sort of embracing creativity in your kitchen and experimenting with something that most people's initial reactions to is, ew, gross, mold. <laughs> um, but like sort of embracing the the really interesting chemical and sort of microbiotic m- magic abilities that mold has. And Jeremy and Rich are both koji super enthusiasts, I think it's fair to say. So, so how did they get into it? 
Oh god, if you if you hear the two of them talk, it's kind of like they have their own like mind meld thing going on. You know, they they finish each other's sentences. They're super into what they do. Jeremy runs his own restaurant larder in Cleveland, Ohio. <clears throat> so my restaurant is an Eastern European delicatessen. And he actually, you know, says he got into to Koji when someone asked him to make miso. And sort of in the process of making miso, he had to dig into, you know, the, the origins and the backstory of it, which is, which is Koji. When I say we are powered by Koji... Some of the charcuterie we make, we marinate in shiokoji or amazaki before we hang it to dry and, and cure out. Or we grow the mold on smoked cured vegetables to make vegetable charcuterie. And Rich sort of fell into it separately, um, just through sort of like natural experimentation. And eventually I just fell down this rabbit hole of wanting to understand more about fermentation. And funny enough... Koji was sort of my first uh, adventure into understanding fermentation and making it myself. And eventually, through the magical powers of the internet, the other great networking... Uh, <laughs> Medium. Amoebic entity, yeah. Um, they were told that they needed to meet each other, that they needed to work together, and boom, now they've co-written this really innovative book. And their book... Koji Alchemy is part of a growing number of fermentation-themed cookbooks and recipe books to have come out of Japan in the past few years, right? Yeah, I mean, I think particularly this year, like, there's been this return to sort of slow food and knowing where your food has come from and being environmentally conscious and, and figuring out ways to get the most flavor and nutrition and use out of everything that you work with in your kitchen. So this book came out, Sandor Katz, he's this really big fermentation guru. His new book just came out this year. Uh, Kirsten Shockey, she penned a mini essay for Koji Alchemy. She and her husband had a book come out late last year. And I think one of the big things that all these new cookbooks do is they facilitate ways for people who know nothing about koji to get into it, whether they're a professional chef or a home cook. Um, there's just all these new resources for people to dive into. You touched a little bit on the uses of koji already, and one of the biggest uses in Japan is as an essential ingredient in the process of making sake. But what is the history of koji and its relationship to Japanese cuisine? Well, Rich and Jeremy dig into this, but basically koji is one of the earliest um, domesticated foods. And I mean, I didn't know that you could domesticate a mold, but according to Jeremy, pottery fragments from 9,000 years ago were found in China with residue of koji in them. And when the residue that had soaked into the clay was analyzed, they found out that it was a chemical match for an alcohol made from hawthorn, mixture of rice and honey. And in order to ferment rice into alcohol, you can't just ferment it out like other grains like wheat and barley to make beer. It needs this enzymatic cataclyst. It needs the enzymes, these specialized proteins produced by koji. So it came from China into Japan and... It's in Japan that it, the sort of ways to use and work with koji got super codified and every foundational Japanese flavor that you can think of, you know, I already mentioned sake, but soy sauce, miso, amazake, you know, all those real umami bombs that make food taste delicious, like that's, that's all koji. 
And when you say it's all koji, how, how's it actually being incorporated into those foodstuffs? Yeah, so one of the bases of, of sake is um, sort of kome koji, what's known as, as rice koji. So basically, to really like break it down, you have your steamed starch, in this case, rice, often a rice that's specifically grown for sake production, and you sprinkle koji spores on top of it, again, often specific koji spores for particular types of sake. And then it's basically um, a couple-day process of babysitting the koji, making sure the rice stays at temperature, stirring it, and making it really happy. So at the end of the the two to three days, you come back and and your steamed rice has grown this really kind of creepy looking, but like, you know, very thorough, fuzzy white coating of mold that, you know, if you listen to Jeremy and Rich smells amazing. Um, When you work with a lot of fermented foods, most often people get used to smells that are along the lines of basement or wet dog those sorts of things. And when you smell koji growing for the first time and you're overwhelmed by these aromas of honeysuckle and green apple, fresh flowers, tropical fruit, right away your mind goes to a place that is just flabbergasted. Yeah, listening to Rich and Jeremy describe koji you get a pretty good sense of how much they love the stuff but i do remember going to a sake brewery once and and they took us inside the koji room and it smells amazing because at that point the koji is creating a lot of sugars that end up being converted into alcohol by the yeast that's added later and you do end up walking into this koji room that's filled with the aroma of hot sweet rice and it and it smells delicious well, I mean, you know, that's kind of what amazake is as well. You know, you've got your, your your koji rice that has been heated and sort of liquefied and you give it to kids to drink and yeah. <laughs> as you said, though, koji was something that was discovered on pottery fragments in China from 9,000 years ago. So, so it's not something that's unique to Japan. It's used as a starter across Asia for a lot of delicious condiments and, and the recipes that they're built out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the other big, I mean, I guess the other big name that people would know that comes to mind that's made from koji is um, Korean gochujang, you know, that kind of like really thick, dark maroon, spicy sauce that often gets dumped on top of, of bibimbap. Like that's, that's derived from koji. Um, out of China, there's... Um, a whole bunch of other like fermented, like smelly fermented pastes that form a lot of the backbone of Chinese cooking, like those are all derived from koji. And I mean, it's really kind of a pity that the Western world is kind of only just getting into it. We knew about miso beforehand because it's easy to store and ship miso, but I mean, koji is, is this really new thing to the West. And with that, Jeremy and Rich are promoting this book as a way to discover koji in the way that you might discover and use something like sourdough. But koji is a mould, and when people think about moulds, they think of stuff that's gone off. They commonly think of stuff that smells really bad. But koji is a very different mould from from these types of mould, right? Yeah, so koji actually derived from what is you know was originally domesticated from what was actually a toxic mold but uh leaving that aside koji is 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 totally edible and it's not the same thing as when you open your fridge and you look in the back and you've got a an orange that's gone off and it's all blue 
Um, and I think that's like a real hurdle for for people to get over, myself included. And what works for me is sort of remembering that a lot of the foods I already do love, cheese, like camembert cheese, for instance, like that's that's made with a mold. And so it's it's kind of just getting yourself over the hump that what you've been conditioned to think is like the correct way to eat or prepare a food is the only way to eat or prepare a food. Um, and to really start branching out into accepting and trying sort of different cooking techniques. And then once you've kind of passed that, the world is your koji oyster. <laughs> has, it, has anyone made a koji infused oyster? Honestly, I'm sure there's definitely been some like koji crusted seafood scallops. I know someone's done koji crusted shrimp and then you, know, you kind of brush it off before you sear it. And it, like, it's this huge shrimpy umami, delicious flavor pop. When you say it's adding umami, what, what's the koji actually doing there to, to create that? So Rich describes it really well, and he has this wealth of technical knowledge. So if we talk about, you know, creating umami on different levels, whether it be short-term in a shio koji application or long-term in a miso, it's a matter of taking these enzymes to create amino acids. So they're more delicious. They're more, you know, bioavailable to you. But basically, it's like what you mentioned with the sake. The enzymes in the koji are breaking down the stuff it's put on and creating new sugars and amino acids, which really enhance the taste. So if you put a, like some shio koji, like a salt koji mixture, and you put it on a kind of meh average piece of steak, like what that does is it, it breaks it down and it makes it more tender. And then, you know, once you sear it, it, it makes it taste like, you know, the best... A5 Wagyu steak that you'd ever have. Take a shio koji and just marinate a piece of protein and, and within hours or even the next day, it tastes wonderful beyond anything that you could ever imagine because it uses, the enzymes that are created through the koji are able to create amino acids and sugars with the constituent um, materials that you start with. And Jeremy puts it in this really evocative way, and his, his philosophy is basically that through this process of breaking down food, koji makes everything taste like a more delicious version of itself. So it makes beef taste more like beef. It makes broccoli taste more like broccoli. Anything you add it to is going to taste more like what you're cooking. And it's just such an incredible, pleasurable experience to eat it. So on the one hand, you've got the traditional uses of koji, like for making sake, for making miso, for making soy sauce, all of which are used to flavor the vast majority of Japanese cuisines. But it's now also being used by chefs around the world to help flavor their dishes in different ways and different settings. So how is it being used outside of the traditional Japanese canon of cuisine? Well, yeah, so it's being used a lot in, in meat charcuterie, so slapping some koji on a piece of meat and letting it age that way. But for the vegetarians and vegans among us, you could also use koji to make vegetable charcuterie. Um, Jeremy has this recipe he's described for this burdock jerky, but... Anything where you can like think of that plays off with like sweet and salty, koji works really well with. So one thing I like to do, and obviously I'm no like professional chef, but I get really like thick, hearty pasta, and if I'm making a tomato sauce for it, I'll just instead of salting it, I'll just dump a whole bunch of shio koji in there, 
which really oomphs up the tomato flavor. Or sometimes I even just drain the pasta, put them in a pan, put in butter, shiokoji, salt, garlic, and like make this own, you know, this like really garlicky, addictive, herbaceous, mm. like sauce for it. It's, it's, so it's kind of like, you know, if you have a flavor you like and you kind of, you know, you're eating and you're like, uh, I wish, I wish this tomato tasted tomatoier. I wish this garlic tasted garlicier. Like that's, that's what koji does for you. And have you talked to any professional chefs to get their takes on it as well? Yeah. So I talked uh, to Thomas Frabel of the unfortunately now closed Inua about how he uses koji in his kitchen. And he said, I mean, he quote unquote uses it like salt. So it's a pretty foundational way that he approaches cooking. Uh, I mean, Oscar, you worked there. Did you ever get a chance to, to do anything with their with their koji? I don't think they trusted me with their koji, <laughs> no, or their salt for that matter. <laughs> Both are far too precious for me to get my hands on. Yeah, but I mean, in, in his interview, he told this really great story about the first time they he had ever tried to work with, with koji. And it went horribly wrong. The koji itself killed it because it got too hot and it just turned into like a slushy barley thing you know it was it was really funny it made me feel a lot better about my own kitchen failures when he said that it came out as this weird like mushy thing that wasn't usable and i just went ah oh, okay great good to know that practice makes perfect <laughs> i can just imagine you eating bowls of mush for weeks on end trying to perfect your koji recipes one thing that's still a mystery to me though is, is that when you're using your koji at home how are you actually incorporating it into your cooking where where do you get the shio koji mentioned in your recipes? Are you growing your own koji from scratch? I confess I haven't quite quite gotten to the stage of of buying the spores and attempting to grow my own. Um, <laughs> I know it's like I feel so bad being like, yeah, everyone should do this, and I haven't done it yet. Um, I mean, I think the kind of like gateway to getting comfortable and, and familiar with koji is to consciously try and incorporate like things that it's that are made from it or derived from it so we're lucky here in japan like you can just walk into any average supermarket and buy these little like packs of of shiokoji they come with little screw top lids you know and some of them are chunky and some of them are smooth and you can add those basically in place of salt to a lot of dishes and obviously there's also tubs and tubs and tubs of miso um, in varieties that I have absolutely no idea what they are. Abroad, I know like specialty, I mean, miso is common now, but specialty grocery stores will carry sort of koji, either shio koji that's, you know, in a liquid form or even dried rice koji that you can kind of reconstitute and then, and then work with. Um, and you can buy koji spores online now. And have you been tempted to buy some? I have, and I did go to a koji business that Jeremy and Rich recommended, and I actually learned that there's only there's only six left in the entire country. So you know, I think it's really great that people are embracing this mold in a new way now, and hopefully, like keeping this this industry alive for generations to come. But yeah, on their website, they break it down by like what you want to use your koji for. So there's miso koji spores and sake koji spores and. Ginjo uber nice sake spores, you know. So if I really wanted to get niche with it, I could experiment. It's an interesting point you raised there, and I want to ask: um, Is there a risk of koji 
production and the use of koji dying out in japan is it one of those things that was once a staple in the culture but as society ages and fewer people are cooking for themselves that there's now a risk of it disappearing well i i definitely think that there's a risk that people will increasingly get less familiar with how to use it i mean how many people do you know who make their own miso anymore for instance or you know make their own vinaigrettes instead of just like buying something out of the store and i mean there's been data for years and years that the the sake industry you know has been in decline like there's just less demand for sake and it has this huge knock-on effect with the rice industry as well particularly in in regional areas of the country so i don't want to like give a grand pronouncement that like if we don't use koji it will die out completely but i am really hopeful that as people continue to embrace working and experimenting with it that it it rebounds positively for the the industries like the related industries with the publication of something like rich and jeremy's book is there a growing community of people around the world that are using koji in their cooking not just at a professional restaurant level but um, home cooks like yourself Oh, absolutely. Um, the hashtag that Rich and Jeremy have been making popular and using is, is literally just hashtag Koji Builds Community. Um, and if you search for that on you know your social media of choice, you'll get thousands of pictures of people's homegrown experiments or people swapping tips. Um, there's another pretty active group um, called Cultures Group, and they run all of these online seminars um, drawing from home cooks and aficionados, particularly women, which I mean, I personally find really awesome. And they teach these low cost, if not free, you know, classes on how to do everything at home. And the emphasis really here, and Rich and Jeremy like illustrate this perfectly, I think, is like no question is too small. You know, there are no, you know, just because you don't have as much experience now, that doesn't mean they're trying to be exclusive. Like these are just like groups of people who really love what they're doing and want everyone else to love what they're doing and are doing their utmost to make koji and fermentation a really approachable, accessible way to give people some power back in their cooking and in what they're putting into their bodies. The most wonderful part about it is they make them through their own individual cultural lenses. An individual in Mexico City could take a tradition from Tokyo, be inspired by it, be in awe of it, and want to honor it, yet make it with ingredients that are indigenous to them that make sense for the food that they make and enjoy on a daily basis. It essentially creates an unspoken language that we can all understand and get along with. It's really, really, really powerful. So Jeremy and Rich have this really communal vision of Koji and what it can do for people. But one of the really interesting things actually is the way that Koji is applicable even outside of the immediate food world. I mean, both Jeremy and Chef Thomas Frabel, who was talking earlier, are really sort of into the idea of using Koji to, to save the world. You can do this yourself in your own home. I mean, there's ways to compost with koji. There's a Japanese method in particular called bokashi, which is driven by fermentation and fertilization. So the 
koji spores actually help sort of break down the raw waste that you've that you've put into your compost pile. Uh, and you can also use it to get more nutrition and even more edible food out of what would normally be kitchen scraps. So one of the recipes in koji alchemy is actually for a no-waste citrus miso that uses lemon peels and lemon rinds that you'd normally toss to make, you know, this whole other citrusy um, amino paste. But, you know, people are dreaming a lot bigger than just sort of the home kitchen when it comes to using koji. Uh, Jeremy mentioned how it's being used to help clean up oil spills. And Chef Thomas Frabel touches on this dream he has of using koji to break down food waste into a nutritious, edible paste. It all sounds very space-agey, but also that's because it actually is very space-agey. Jeremy even gets into how NASA is looking into use koji on Mars. I, I think it's going to do more than save the world um, because there are people working with Koji and its relatives right now and how it is going to sustain humans off world as we start to colonize the moon and Mars. I mean, it is really going to, uh, now that eyes are on it across the world, as opposed to just in specific cultures, it's really going to transform so many things. You say no question is too small, but I'm going to ask a huge question to uh, wrap up the episode. Okay. Is Koji better than sourdough? Yeah, all right. I'll, I'll die on this hill. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll bet that Jeremy and Rich will die on this hill with me. We say this at the same time. I'll count down from three. Three, two, one. Yes. Yes. Koji's better than sourdough. Bread lovers can fight me. <laughs> well, Claire Williamson, you make a very convincing argument. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Claire Williamson. My thanks to her. And since recording this episode, she's been making a mean shield koji salad dressing. Links to that recipe are in the show notes. My thanks also to Jeremy Umansky and Rich Schiff for joining us today. Check out their book, Koji Alchemy. A link to that is also in the episode notes. And finally, thanks to Chef Thomas Frabel, who dreams of creating a koji spore powerful enough that it can turn all organic waste into delicious edible compost one day. Before we go, if you've got a spare moment, please do take a second to rate and review Deep Dive on your favourite podcasting app if you're enjoying the show. Thank you as always for listening and a massive Podskale Summer. Summer.